We've both made a, a cup of tea tonight. I made um, what I call a hot toddy. It's not really a hot toddy. It's strong tea with honey and bourbon. I've never heard the word toddy used by a grown man before. It's a drink. Okay. It's just um, a traditional hot toddy is hot water with lemon and bourbon and like a, a cinnamon stick garnish. It's it's just a bourbon drink with lemon, basically. But I make mine with tea, which I think is – I must have picked it up from somewhere. I don't think I just invented that. <laughs> I mean, I must say this hot toddy sounds very hoity-toity if you ask me. I mean, I just, I just grabbed the first Lipton K-cup in the drawer for my tea. <laughs> I – I've never had much – well, I was going to say I'm not a tea snob, but I actually have loose leaf tea in my house, so I guess that does make me a tea snob by definition. I have bad news for you. <laughs> you are a tea snob. Damn it. Well, what I was going to say is um, I never had much luck with the K-Cups. I, I always thought they came out tasting kind of weird to me. People say that. I've had people say that to me in my Twitch chat and whatnot. We either buy like the just the regular Earl Grey or just whatever Lipton's on sale. You know, I'm not I'm not a tea snob. Uh, yeah, I've had people say that like, oh, you can't drink tea out of a a Keurig. It just comes out tasting like whatever coffee was been through there recently. Well, well that's very true. If you're not cleaning your stuff out, then it is absolutely going to taste like. See, I don't. <laughs> I've never made any conscious effort to clean out the Keurig after Peanuts used it, and I've never noticed a coffee flavor in my tea. So either I'm just desensitized to it, or people have overstated that. Let me ask you this. Do you like coffee? Because you don't actually like coffee that much, right? I can't stand coffee. I like the smell of coffee, but the, mm -hmm. I, the taste of it is absolutely abhorrent to me. So I would think if you had a little coffee in your tea, then you would be absolutely noticing that it was uh, <laughs> tainting your right. stuff. Because people don't realize that. If you don't like a flavor, you will taste that flavor if it's in something. What I do sometimes, I haven't done this in a while, but I might, when it gets colder, um, I'll get some of the, um, the hot chocolate varieties that come with a bunch of different crazy hot chocolate flavors for the Keurig. And then if you run a coffee through immediately after, then you get a little chocolate in your coffee. And that's actually a perk, I find. <laughs> We actually have a, a a little fondue pot. I think we got it for our as a wedding present, and we've used it like all of three times. But what I did a couple times is I made chocolate fondue in it. At the we didn't use all the all the chocolate I made, and so I put it in the fridge, and it turned into fudge. So that was nice. <laughs> <laughs> Next time you do a chocolate fondue, because mm -hmm. they're super easy. It's like if you if a, if you have any sort of con fondue pot, whether it's like an electric one or like a double boiler or anything, go with a. Uh, Either a white or a dark chocolate, doesn't matter, with a healthy slug of amaretto. Ooh. And that's that the way to good. be if you're going to do chocolate. Do you use the uh, marshmallows? Because that's what we did. We did the um, the dark chocolate chips with marshmallows, because um, that's apparently supposed to make it, like, fluffier or something. And then when that's – if you actually leave some leftover in there, that kind of makes essentially fudge. I don't, I don't know about this idea of having leftovers. When... I made <laughs> – so much for two people. I made basically an entire like bag of chocolate. See, I would have thought that busting out the fondue pot during uh, her pregnancy would have been the time to do it. Well, she had um gestational diabetes, so that would have been a good way to kill her. Oh, well, <laughs> that's a yeah. very tragic turn to this fondue idea that we're 
disgusting oh man that would have been so horrible no like she had and i didn't know this is a thing that could happen there's apparently a lot of things that can happen when you're pregnant that you just don't know about if you've never gone through it but um yeah she got temporary diabetes like she's over it now <laughs> the, her doctor literally said the cure is giving birth <laughs> she was I, like oh okay on one hand that's the most stupid thing i've ever heard like on one hand it's like that's not that can't possibly be a thing it absolutely is. On the other hand, it's that pregnancy is you have an alien growing in you. So... I mean, it's literally tapping into your blood supply. I mean, that's literally what the kid does. And uh, for whatever reason, it just turns some women diabetic. I don't know exactly how it, how that works. So she was on this crazy diet, um, which meant I was on this crazy diet, where she had to eat like four times a day. And but we had to have like a very strict amount of carbs. So I had to look up all these crazy recipes Wow. A friend of mine, one of the women in my D&D group, her pregnancies... Okay, so having this gestational diabetes would have definitely killed her. I think if I go to my game this Saturday and tell her that gestational diabetes is a thing, just her hearing it might kill her. How how far along is she? Oh, she's her kids are both born and she's had her tubes tied since, but during her pregnancies... I have never seen a human being eat so disgusting as this woman did while she was pregnant. I hand to God, we were playing D&D, and I look over, and she has a tub of just open cake frosting and a spoon. Oh, man. I've done that before. Well, I had leftover cake frosting, and I dipped Oreos into cake frosting, and that was one of the more decadent things I'd done <laughs> in my Why life. Would you, do, you don't even have the excuse of pregnancy, my friend. When I was young, I had one of those metabolisms where I was just always hungry. Like, I would go to the burger joint and get the combo, you know, the burger and fries, and I would get a side burger. <laughs> just an extra burger. <laughs> just a side burger, huh? Yeah, a little side burger. What I like to do is I'd like to mix it up. I'd get, like, a, a chicken sandwich at the Wendy's and then get a side cheeseburger. <laughs> And was was light, was underweight for a long time. And then suddenly I got fat. <laughs> the side burgers caught up with you. So yeah, no, definitely eating eating frosting straight from a can was not doing me uh, too much harm back then. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And here's the thing, though. Like, I'm not 100% convinced it was, like, pregnancy cravings with her. I think she just eats that way. And... <laughs> When she was pregnant, she just did it in front of people because it was socially acceptable. Because I'm pretty <laughs> sure I've caught her a few... I know for sure once or twice, one of us in the house would go to get Oreos and open the bag, and all of the Oreos had been licked clean of frosting and then placed back in the bag. No! No, no, that is a war crime. She should be tried in The Hague. Ugh. I mean, it's definitely grounds for divorce, and I'm sure my friend has a lawyer on retainer. But he's got that in his back pocket. Back when I was single, I feel like I had the opposite problem. Like, the the actual sensation that people feel of getting hungry is not something that I'm real familiar with. In the period of time after I moved out of my parents' house and I was living with a roommate, I didn't have anybody whose job it was to feed me. I would go, like, I'd come home from work Friday night, and then, like, Sunday afternoon I'd be sitting at home like, huh, I feel like I'm about to faint and realize I haven't <laughs> eaten in 70 hours. I'm real bad sometimes about, because I'm not a big breakfast guy, I don't tend to wake up super hungry, so I'm real bad about waking up and then getting into something and then realizing, why do I feel like crap? Oh, it's two o'clock in the afternoon and I haven't eaten anything today. 
Yeah, eating for me was never like a pastime. It was never something that I did because I enjoyed it. It was always just, I have to feed the body at some point. You just got to fuel up the car, huh? <laughs> but I feel like after me and Peanut got together, like I learned to be hungry. <laughs> yeah. Because she she she's always eating and she's always cooking and there's always food in the house now. And I'm pretty sure me and Michelle talked to Peanut about this at times. About um, when Michelle and I started dating, we we liked to go try new food. Like that was our idea of a good date. You know, it wasn't. We wouldn't be like, oh, let's go eat something and then go to a movie. It'd be like, let's go to some restaurant. That is the event. You know, like we we loved going out to to try new food all the time. So that was something we we definitely bonded over. <laughs> so you go out to the new restaurant, and on the way home, you get the side burger. We go back to my house and then, you know, have like a midnight snack of something disgusting out of my pantry, probably, because my wife is is interesting because she really, really loves food, but does not necessarily discriminate. So we have we'll have like really, really good, like international cuisine and then she'll come home and, you know, at midnight make a dollar pack of ramen and think and. <laughs> And, like, fancies it up with – she likes to do this thing with ramen where she um, poaches an egg in it and then puts American cheese in it to, to give it a creamy base. Mm -hmm. So it tastes more like restaurant ramen. And it's good. But I'm like, you're starting off with a dollar back of ramen. What, <laughs> how much are you going to fancy this pack up? <laughs> so she'll have, like, the artisanal foie gras or whatever and then pizza <laughs> rolls on the side. I think she would. I think she would absolutely dip like a pizza roll in caviar if the two were presented to her. You see, that's healthy, though, because these barriers that you're talking about between quote-unquote good food and bad food, whatever, it's like, these are just arbitrary. These are just barriers that you've been taught, that you acknowledge, but there's not, they're not really there. Well, I just think it's I think it's interesting. It's it's not that one is good or one is bad. I just think it's interesting how her taste can go, can vary so wildly from like borderline sophisticated to eating out of a garbage can. I don't make any distinction between the sophisticated food and the garbage can food. If it tastes good in my mouth and it doesn't make me sick, that's a winner in my book. I can go so far with that up until there's a certain point where I cannot take more sodium or more oil. And she just keeps on going down the junk pile. And and I'm a guy who likes like pork rinds and beef jerky. So, you know, I'm not exactly Mr. Snooty Eater, eater over here. But you do have tea leaves. I have loose leaf tea, please. <laughs> Use the correct terminology. Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> that was actually one scene in The Handmaid's Tale. I don't remember which season it was, but... Uh, the kind of conceit of the society in Handmaid's Tale is we're going back to a simpler time when things were not right. as complicated. And there was one scene where it shows this woman drinking or making tea and she's going through the whole process of like steeping the leaves in the little metal. What's the little metal ball called? A tea? Is it a tea steeper? I don't even know. I mean, if it's the little ball that you put in the cup, like for like a single cup, that's just called a tea ball. A tea ball. Okay. Well, she has one of those and she's got the leaves in it that like, you know what? This is a post-teabag society. You can't tell me that teabags are more complicated than your little metal ball. You're just being a tea snob now on the show. Well, I don't think they have factories. I mean, they do have some, but I think that making teabags, that's like a luxury factory. They have canned <laughs> goods. 
Okay. Of course they have factories making Do they have canned food. goods? I don't remember I don't remember seeing canned goods on they the show. They do. Yeah, in the show they've got can they still have canned goods. They still have boxes of And even if they didn't, like mass producing tea bags, like this is not <laughs> Maybe there's an obscure biblical passage that forbids the manufacture of wrapping tea in various types of paper or something. I don't know. It's probably in Leviticus. There's a lot of BS in Leviticus. <laughs> I don't know why my when you were talking about canned goods in this uh, in this in that show, I was thinking, well, maybe they're old canned goods, and then I start thinking about one of my favorite plot holes in The Walking Dead, which is that they keep finding stuff from the world before, but they're real kind of iffy on how much time has passed because canned goods do eventually expire, <laughs> as does gasoline. Gasoline in a can does not work apparently after a year. <laughs> I don't want to be that guy, but. Be that I, guy. I don't think they are iffy about the amount of time that's passed in The Walking Dead. I think they're, if you follow the show's logic, I think they're pretty clear. Because the show opens with Rick coming out of a coma. Mm-hmm. And he comes out of his coma because nobody's at the hospital to take care of him because they've all been eaten by zombies. Right. So it could not have been long enough for him to starve. And he eventually finds his family again. And it's been a matter of maybe six months or so. Right, but I'm talking about how long Rick and his crew have been on the road, because I think in the canon of the show, it's been like a few years, Mm -hmm. but you got to look at like the way that the actor who plays Coral (laughs) has aged. The reason I say I think you can follow how much time has passed, this is a dumb conversation. We're going to push through the end on this one. We're going (laughs) to... Because at the time, like, they do whatever, Carl and Rick and his family and whatever, they end up on this farm and his wife finds out she's pregnant. And then you can follow how long she's been pregnant, she eventually gives birth, and then you can follow the aging of that baby. So that baby on the show isn't more than, can't be more than two or three years old now. Well, and I think that one of the problems they're having, and this is just what happens when you have, like, tween actors, is I think that the baby is aged, like, two years. Because they can just recast a baby. They can just get some different baby in there, you know? Whereas the the actor who played Carl went from about 10 to 18 or something. I don't even know how old the... All that said, even just with the logic within the show, if you take it at face value, they should not be driving cars. No, gasoline should be... should be dead. I've... (laughs) I've, uh... I have a Camry. I've you seen my Camry before, but it does it's it's in bad shape these days. And I, I drive it very, very rarely. Anytime I have to drive I, I tend to use peanuts cars. So I don't gas it up all the way because if I fill up the gas tank, it'll just sit in my driveway if I drive it once a week, maybe, and eventually the gasoline'll go bad just over the course of a couple of months. So no, nobody should be driving in the walking dead. I bring it up because one of my favorite have you ever read The Stand, the Stephen King novel The Stand? I find Stephen King novels very wearying, but I am well, familiar I, with the story. I do know the story okay. pretty well. Well, I mean, if you find Stephen King wearying, this is like the weariest of the wearying Stephen King because right. it is immensely long. But there's one part of the book that I really love. There's like an interlude between, you know, everybody gets the plague. And then so this, the book basically takes place in two halves where it's the build up to, to the plague and then a bunch of people die, and then the survivors have kind of a showdown between good and evil. And there's an interlude. It's just a series of vignettes. It's maybe 10 or 20 pages long, and he just goes through all these ways that people are dying after the end of the world. People who survived the plague. But they just die because, you know, they tried to start a fire in their house and died of smoke inhalation, or they tried to, you know, do this, that, and the other. And I just, somewhere in my head, 
there's got to be an encampment in the world of The Walking Dead where everyone just dies because they crap themselves to death after eating some bad canned goods because that stuff's <laughs> been sitting around for four years now. That's it. I don't, I don't know why my brain works this way. I had to bail on this show because I have such a difficult time with stories that only work because the characters are stupid. I mean, that's horror. That's the whole genre for the most part. And you're, you're right. You're definitely, you're not wrong. Okay. And I am, I'm a big horror fan. People, I, people know I love my horror. I love my slasher movies. I just watched, uh, a Quiet Place last week, which I thought was excellent. It's a two hour movie. Okay. Right. Every Saw movie is 90 minutes. Friday the 13th, these movies, they're not long enough for you to get absorbed into the world and have to start thinking about the logic of the world. You get in, you get out. You're not in there long enough. Walking Dead is 80-something hours long now. (laughs) And, like, there's no way one group of people can make the same mistakes over and over again and not be dead. It's fine for, you're right. It's fine for a movie because it's fine to have a situation where people make a series of bad choices that gets them into a situation that you depict in a couple hours that takes place over a course of a few hours or a few days. When you've got something that's supposed to take place over the course of years, like the basic pattern of the walking dead is they find a settlement. Everything looks good. Oh wait, everything's not good. They have to kill everybody and move on. Like, that is the entire show now. And we touched on it a little bit last week when we were talking about uh, Handmaid's Tale and uh, Hunger Games. And I love dystopian worlds. I just have a lot of problems with a lot of the stories that people try to tell in them because I always kind of defy my my limit of, uh, of, ex- of believability sometimes. I've seen a very in-depth breakdown of Fallout 4 criticizing... Apparently, Fallout 4 takes place in and around Boston, 200 and some odd years after the bombs drop and destroy the world. But there are survivors. Some humans survive because some are packed away in vaults and others mutate into radiation-proof zombies or whatever. But people live in this burned-out Boston, and the guy's criticism is that Boston couldn't look like this 200 years after this war, provided people still lived there. They still have burned out cars in the street and rubble everywhere. Like, if 200 years have passed, they've cleared all that away. They've made it livable again. I get that. Yeah, that's that's actually probably fair. That is a problem I had with Fallout 3, which is, I think Fallout 3 takes place more close to the bombs, but it's still like there are cities established, you know? Yeah, like in, in 4, which I think takes place furthest out. I think 200 plus years is the furthest they've gone. Yeah, I think you're right about that. Yeah, they've got little towns established in the ruins of Boston. And if it's not Boston, if I'm wrong, I'm sure somebody will have left a comment for me correcting me on what city it is. What city it is actually doesn't matter. You don't have people living in a destroyed city that have built little shanty towns. They will have cleared away the rubble and the debris. And that's kind of, I feel the same way about The Walking Dead. Like three years after the zombie apocalypse, okay, the flashpoint happened and most of humanity is dead, I mm-hmm. don't believe that the 10% that survived would have devolved into just these murderous, rampaging tribes in three years with no skill sets and no designs on the future. Right. The smartest criticism I've heard against dystopian future um, stuff, like Walking Dead, is if man was incapable of forming a society out of wilderness society would have never existed in the first place. Yes. 
yeah, there can definitely be some bad actors. There will definitely be some evil people out there. But you're you're going to get something more akin to now. That that's part of what makes like Handmaid's Tale so disquieting because it is really similar to like the way say North Korea or Iran or you know one of these. Well, I don't know. I actually don't know about as much Iran, but it's very similar to like what I hear about the way North Korea is run in The Handmaid's Tale and North Korea, obviously. It's one place in the world. If mm. you go out of that place, you're still in the world. Right. And you get that in, in Handmaid's Tale. You you see little glimpses like of them like trying to do stuff with the rest of the world and justify their culture and say, you know, well, we have a right to our way of life kind of stuff. Maybe that's why I found this show so so interesting because North Korea fascinates me. I cannot read and watch enough documentaries about the state of North Korea it horrifies and it fascinates me. And the fascinating thing is we know so little about it when mm -hmm. it comes down to it. But at some point, probably in our lifetimes, like, it's all going to come out. Well, and there's been, like, little glimpses of it. You get people who escape and then have these, like, tell-all books or whatever. And Michelle is the same way. Michelle is absolutely obsessed with North Korea and Scientology and any kind of cultish kind of thing. I told her about uh, Rumspringa. She hadn't heard of that before. I mentioned it when we were in Gatlinburg, and we haven't had time yet, but I, I guarantee you she's going to be finding books about that too. So one day North Korea, it's going to bust open one way or another, and we're going to find out way more than we think we know already. Did you read um, World War Z? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. See, and that's... That's why I liked World War Z so much, because it yeah, it was a zombie book, but it was really a political book. In a way, yeah. Mild spoilers for anyone who hasn't read World War Z, but one of the things that happens is North Korea just kind of disappears. Yeah, it's very unsettling. They describe, because the situation at the border are these three North Korean guards. Two of them face each other, and then one of them faces South Korea. And right. we think the reason they do it that way is to make sure that none of the guards at the border try to defect. If any of them try to defect, the other two can shoot him. But in the in the book, in World War Z... Don't they just turn and walk away back into the country or something at some point? Yeah, in the book, uh, in World War Z, they just turn and walk away. And they don't say anything, and they don't do anything, and then that's it. So at the end of the book, when they're, they think they destroyed all the zombies, somebody muses, like, there's probably just two million zombies running around the tunnels underneath North Korea. Yeah, right they think now. everyone just literally went underground. They think that they had their, like, underground bunkers and whatever, and they went down there and just eating each other. World War Z was such a good book, and I was so upset that they made a not-great movie about it. No, the movie was not great, and hmm, maybe they needed Alan Rickman to do the voice of a robot. Or a zombie. <laughs> oh, my God. I think my favorite, and maybe favorite is not an appropriate word to use in this context, but my, I think my favorite story to come out of North Korea, because like your wife, I am fascinated by the subject, and I've read many of these tell-all stories, people who have defected, because it's not as easy as just presenting yourself at the border and saying, hey, I want sanctuary, because the only border is China. China just turns you around. So if you're going to defect, you kind of have two paths like one you try to get yourself to south korea which is basically impossible yeah because there's this demilitarized zone with all these landmines or if you can get through china to mongolia on the books they'll say well we don't recognize your sanctuary we're just going to return you to korea but 
they don't view North Korea as a country, so they'll they'll send you to like wink wink nudge nudge. We're sending you oh, home, but you end. We're up sending in you South to Korea. Korea. Ah, gotcha. But my favorite story, and again, favorite's a bad word, but is about a North Korean doctor who is starving. Uh, she has no privileges. She has no. She has nothing basically, and she ends up defecting. She scrapes together enough money to try to smuggle herself across the border to China. Something goes wrong. And she ends up on the run in China, like, starving. And she ends up in somebody's, like, on a farm on, like, a back porch or something. And there's a plate of food on the ground. And she just drops down and she's just shoveling it in her mouth. And at halfway through this meal, she realizes she's eating food that was left out for this Chinese family's pets. The dogs in China eat better than the doctors in North Korea. Oh, my quote God. From that's the horrible. It's like, what a, what, what a story. Eventually, she made it to South Korea and was able to write this book. Can I tell you a uh, Kickstarter success story? I would love to hear a Kickstarter success story. Um, one of the very first things I ever backed on Kickstarter, whenever Kickstarter started, like, what, 2014, however many years ago? It was like the 70s. Well, it's one of the first games I backed, uh, and I don't back a lot anymore because things just get delayed or canceled so much. Um, but I backed a game called Chasm that has finally come out, and uh, it's good. Uh, I think you would like this game. Have you heard any much about this one yet? I just heard about it for the first time like 40 seconds ago. Oh, okay. So Chasm is, it's a Castlevania-like, uh, very, very much a Castlevania wannabe kind of, kind of game, but it has very like solid controls, like they put in the work. But what's interesting about it is when you start the game, there is a field for a seed number. So what it is, it's a Castlevania, and I mean like a full length, like 10-hour Castlevania that is procedurally generated. So in theory, it's infinitely replayable, assuming that I like the game enough that I want to keep playing it. And so far I do. What's interesting about it is um, I assume the way that it's going to randomize, and I haven't played with this very much. I'm just still sort of playing through my first seed. And I assume the way that it's going to randomize is basically a door randomizer. So you've got different kind of zones, and I assume it's got a bank of possible rooms and a bank of logic, and it's just going to shuffle these around in a particular way. And one thing I do like about it is I saw someone describe it as being kind of like a dungeon crawler. Because it really, while it has like the look of a Castlevania, it's a lot of just seeing how far you can get before having to bail. But it's good. And but what I'm what I'm happy about is that they had a Kickstarter. It was a very big success. They got delayed, like they all do. But they kept putting in the work, and they didn't do that thing where they where they chase stretch goals forever. I mean, so. it says estimated delivery May 2014. That was estimated delivery? That's what it says on the page. What does it say when the Kickstarter launched? Uh, looks like April 2013, according to Google, is the date that's posted on there. So I guess that's when the Kickstarter launched. So yeah, no, this thing took a while. And they did have stretch goals. I, I'm looking at it right now. They do have stretch goals. But they're things that make sense. Things that they wanted to put into the game, pretty obviously. I'll tell you what I like about this game is one of the screenshots here shows... These little cobalt guys. Mm -hmm. These little cobalt guys are adorable. Oh, they are mean. <laughs> well, they ought to be. They're cobalts. The thing about monsters in this game is they have basically, they all have kind of like pretty simple AI logics. And they usually either back away from you and throw projectiles or they rush you. And cobalts are these little knee-high bastards who just charge at you and stab you in the kneecap. 
over and over and over again. And so the way that you have to attack them and some other enemies that follow kind of the same thing is you want to hit your backdash button and your attack button at almost the same time. So you take a backwards swipe at them. (laughs) (laughs) And it's also, it's all hand-drawn pixel art. This isn't like that fake pixel art style where they'll like put pixels on something and then it's flash animated. So the pixels kind of overlap each other. Like this is for real sprite art. It's really nice looking. Yeah, this is definitely something I'm going to have to look into. I've never heard of this before. So, but it's not a roguelite. It's procedurally generated Castlevania. Uh, so I And I wasn't sure how it was going to come out. Like, well, the first time I died in it and it kicked me back to a save point, I was like, okay, so that's how it's going to work. Uh, the only thing I don't like about it so far is I feel like enemy drops are kind of Spartan. It's mostly just money. Occasionally you'll get a weapon. So I'm kind of wondering when you do randomize it, how much is really going to be shuffled? Like your your progression item, you know, <laughs> or they could, but then you have potentially like game broken seed, you know? <laughs> I have the opposite story with a couple of Kickstarters that I backed. Oh? I backed them. The thing came out and I loved the thing. Big fan of the thing. Highly recommend the thing. Mm-hmm. But here, two years on, I'm still getting notifications of thing-adjacent things. <laughs> I backed the uh, Shantae a couple years ago. Half-Genie Hero came out. It was an excellent game. Really, really enjoyed it. But the games, they keep putting out new game modes where Shantae's dressed up like different things. And none of these game modes are very good. These are all just the same levels with a slightly different character. And I keep getting the emails that are super excited about it. And I'm like, shouldn't you guys kind of be working on a a new game now? Are you obligated to do just all of this fluff and nonsense because it was a Kickstarter? I mean, that kind of happens. That's kind of what happens with Kickstarters. And then I feel like dev teams end up doing this one game forever. Yeah. I mean, as much as I love Shovel Knight, I really want to see what those guys are going to do next. And I don't think they have they ever have they announced another game yet. We're still waiting on one more chapter for Shovel Knight. And I love Shovel Knight, and I've liked one of the two modes that they put out. Yeah, Specter Knight. Specter Knight. That's oh. what it was. Specter Knight. I like. Though I never finished that mode. I need to go back and finish that one. What is the worst thing you backed on Kickstarter? I've never backed anything bad on Kickstarter. Really? Because I'm well. I'm not a Kickstarter junkie. I'm not one of these people that go on Kickstarter and throw money at everything that I think looks even remotely good. Like, for me to back something on Kickstarter, it has to be something that really, really excites me, made by people that I am certain will deliver it. I mean, I've backed Shantae, and I've backed 7th C, which is a tabletop role-playing game. I didn't back Mighty Number no. 9. I didn't back Bloodstain. I didn't back Abduction when it came out. Wow. Because... As much as I love the Myst games, at that time, I was dubious on whether or not Cyan would be able to deliver what they were promising. Mm-hmm. And what Abduction was fantastic. I really enjoyed it. One of the best games I've played in the past five years. But at the time, yeah, I'm like, I, I don't know if this company is actually going to be able to follow through on this. They've been real spotty for a very long time. So I backed a lot of stuff on Kickstarter in the first couple of years that that the platform kind of came out. And then I didn't back anything from about 2014 until fairly recently. I backed, there's a thing called the Flip Grip, which is a grip for the Switch that'll enable you to play games in vertical orientation. And it was like 15 bucks. I'm like, okay, I'll back that. And because it was people who I knew, it's Fangamer and and the guy who does Retronauts Mm -hmm. is putting this thing out. 
And they basically said, we're putting this thing out one way or another. We're just trying to get some startup capital for manufacturing, you know? Yeah. But yeah, I got some great stuff. I got Shovel Knight. I got Chasm, which is good. I got um, the best thing I think I ever backed on Kickstarter was actually for a convention in Atlanta, the uh, Southern Fried Game Room Expo, which is a pinball and upright arcade cabinet focused gaming expo that they do every year. And I, I saw them, they were trying to raise some money to basically put down a deposit in the hotel. And again, this was one of those things where I knew people who knew the people putting it together and they were kind of like, we're going to do this one way or another. We're trying to give you guys an opportunity to help us out. And it was tiny the first year, but it was really cool. And and now it's, it's getting pretty big. The difference between it and Dragon Con is it's kind of just going into a huge set of rooms that have hundreds of video games, arcade games and pinball machines that are just on free play. And they have panels and stuff, but they're more for like builders and collectors. So I'm less interested in the panels there. So really one day is all I need. Just go there and just play stuff on free play like all day, you know? Do they have fried food? Um, I believe there's fried food available it's not actually a focus of the convention it's just kind of what they call it <laughs> mm. i am less enthused about this convention now knowing that fried chicken is not one of the focuses of it it's a convention in georgia i'm pretty sure you can get some fried chicken there if you want to <laughs> the worst thing i backed on kickstarter was and i don't know why i gave these people money but i backed this thing um I don't super want to like get into it with anyone, so I'm not going to actually name it. But it was this developer who had done a very popular but pretty basic game online. It was a browser-based game, and he basically said, hey, we want to do this as a real game. Mm, I know this project. I yeah, know you yes. They were going to have to do a whole bunch of original drawings and stuff because the thing they had done was a fan game. It had licensed characters in it, and they are like, well, we're going to do you know, this sort of tribute game. And it just went places. Like They apparently rented a house to make their game studio, but the implication is, is they basically just made a party house and spent all the money and I don't even know. It was a mess. And I'm actually looking right now at my pledges on Kickstarter, and I don't know if I can even find that anymore. Oh, no, it's still there. <laughs> it's still there. Original delivery date was expected to be March 2013. Oh. Yeah. So I, I remember following the story on Kickstarter. This was back before people became kind of jaded about Kickstarter. This was back where half of the people were like, how could people do that? Go and put the Kickstarter up and then not deliver the thing and waste all the money. And the other half of us, because I was part of this other half that was like, that's the thing that was obviously going to happen. Right. I remember sitting here when the bottom dropped out of Kickstarter the first time when the first couple of major projects started to fall through. I was like, yeah, that, how did you not see this coming? So the problem with Kickstarter is according to their TOS, if you promise something as a backer reward, you have to deliver it. The problem is most backer rewards are based on a completed project. And Kickstarter also says you are not pre-ordering something. You are investing money so that people can try to do something. Mm -hmm. So the problem is you have all these people who make a thing and their backer reward is you get the thing. 
So it's essentially a pre-order. Mm-hmm. And according to the terms of service, they have to deliver that. That is the way it's supposed to work. But logically, that is a paradox because you also are not guaranteed something when you back it. You become an investor effectively. Yeah, and I, I don't want to make it sound like I'm down on Kickstarter. I think it's a fantastic idea, and obviously lots of really great things have been introduced into the world that we probably would not have had. Mm-hmm. But the key word is investment. Right. Regular Joes like you and me are going on and giving these companies money to try to make a thing. It's an investment, and not every investment pans out. It's how it's worked in the real world in capitalism the entire time we've had it, is people give money to companies as an investment, and the company folds, and they're out their investment. So what happened was a lot of 20-somethings who had never invested in anything approached these projects on the internet like it was a pre-order, and when they didn't get their thing, what happened? I don't understand. I think the thing that pissed me off about this one in particular that burned me wasn't that it didn't happen. Because I've had other Kickstarters where it didn't happen, and I just took it as an investment that didn't come through. This one in particular, I felt like you guys totally scammed people. They act like they're still working on this project, but I'm pretty sure they just scammed a bunch of people. And that's that's the other side of it, too, is I don't know if that particular project was a scam, but I do know there are a lot of scams on Kickstarter. Because there are a lot of scams in the business and investing world. There are a lot of people that just want your money and then will run away with it. That's part of the game. It sounds horrible. It shouldn't happen. But if you have a system where people give money to companies to try to make a thing, you are incentivizing bad actors to take the money and run. Yeah. So if you're going to use Kickstarter as an investor you have to kind of build a savvy for what the scams are. And that's why I won't invest in a company that I don't know anything about. My my policy on Kickstarter has now been I will only back something on Kickstarter if I feel like I can trust the company that's putting it together. And, and this is the key, my pledge is the difference between making it or not making it. When something is overfunded by a billion dollars, I'm just like, you know what? It's going to happen or not. <laughs> I will I will order it when it comes out. There's one that somebody put out that's like, it seems like a good idea. It's this game uh, where it's a board game. It's a board game for girls. It looks empowering and stuff. But it looks like a simple setup. It looks like a board and cards kind of game. We're not talking like massive feelies or whatever. Mm -hmm. And their tiers are like, it would cost $250 to get the game. Hmm. How? How is that even possible? A lot of times when people kickstart board games, they'll be expensive because they're like, we want to do this board game with insane amount of minifigs. We played a couple at Dragon Con. We've had a couple of experiences where the game took much longer to set up than to actually play. Well, and I remember us saying, like, these are really cool minifigs. I don't like this game very much. (laughs) (laughs) But we did. We played a couple of, like, $200 games at Dragon Con, I'm pretty sure. But this does not look like a $200 game. This looks like a $20 Milton Bradley joint. Are you familiar at all with cheap-ass games? Oh, I am. I yeah. followed them on Twitter. Yeah, cheap-ass yeah. games. I wasn't even aware they were still in business, but I've been out of the loop. But no, their whole thing is we don't sell you anything you have. We assume you already own board games that have little pawns and dice and things. Oh, we're talking about a different cheap-ass games. Okay. 
There's a cheap ass gamer, which is like a forum slash Twitter account that just tweets out ga- video game deals. Oh no no, this okay. is... I am not aware. I'm not aware of what you're talking about. Well, we've played Kill Doctor Lucky. Yes. Okay, that was made by Cheap Ass Games. That was like one of their premier games. When they originally sold it, all they sold you was like a deck of cards you could arrange as the game board, and then the the cards you use in the game, and that's it. That's all they would give you. Because they assumed you had the dice and the pawns and the tokens and poker chips or whatever else. But the game got so popular and people demanded the deluxe version, which is the one that I have, with the with a nice full-color board and all of the little wooden pieces and things. So I wonder if that could be a way for some of these board game Kickstarters to go. Like, what you're really paying for is the development of their idea. So... For 5 or $10, you should be able to just get an envelope with just the idea in it so you can play the game without having to invest 250 to fund their entire plastic molding enterprise. Man, we played a couple of games at some friend's house where I think they literally dropped like a $1 or $2 donation into a Dropbox and it was just to print out, you know, a couple of pages of PDF. <laughs> we played this crazy game called... Uh, Oh, I forget what it was. It was one of those games that has a long title that's funny. It was something like uh, Rabbit Rabbit is Hungry and is Trying to Kill You or something like that. And it was basically this game where you're like on a board and you're trying to climb a building or something. So you bring your own token. and But then one of the tokens you designate as the monster that's trying to get you. So it's basically just a dice rolling game, but it was pretty funny. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was some, it might've been from this. I don't know if they do that on this site or not, but I think it was literally like uh, going to a site and dropping a couple bucks to print out the PDFs. <laughs> that's why I'm a much bigger fan of Patreon than I am of Kickstarter right now. I don't know. I feel a lot better giving someone a couple bucks a month than I do giving someone like 20 bucks and they're like, we're going to make a podcast. It's like, okay. (laughs) I definitely like the culture of content creation and people paying the content creator what they feel they're worth. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously I like it because it's my job. (laughs) I wouldn't have bread or salt if I didn't like it. Disclosure. Brick Road uses Patreon. Support him at patreon.com slash brickroadbrickroad or something. Something like that. Something like that. Yeah, Look for it. It's whatever. <laughs> um, where was I going with this? You were talking about the culture. You like the culture of Patreon. Yeah, I, I like the culture of it because if you remember many years ago, back at like turn of the century or so, the big thing was web comics. There was like this big web comic bubble and every web comic had their little donation button. Oh, yeah. And at the time, the culture was kind of flipped because it wasn't, I'm a creator and this is what I'm making. And if you like the thing that I'm making, you can support me. It was, oh, this donation button is money. What do I put on the website to get people to click the button? And as a result, you got just lots and lots of terrible webcomics with the donation button front and center. What I think things like Patreon do is kind of codify the system to where the creation comes first you have somebody who's already making something and then they use the button as part of what they've made yeah a really good example of that is uh there was a cracked series called more news i think is what it was called or some news i forget what it was called and cracked took down all their video stuff so the dude who used to do that show I actually watched this happen in real time on Twitter. It was really funny. He was like, yeah, I'm out of work. I don't know what I'm going to be doing now. And a bunch of people were like, set up a Patreon. Keep doing it. Yeah. (laughs) 
And he tweeted something effectively to the effect of, like, what's a Patreon? <laughs> and then it was like, okay, fine. I'll, I'll hang out a shingle. I'll put the hat out, see if people actually want this thing. And so he set up a Patreon and said, hey, if we can get X amount of money coming in per month, I can go buy some camera equipment and, and do this. And it's become a pretty – I mean, I don't know how much it costs to produce a show. I know that you have to pay people like a living wage, mm-hmm. but they are apparently bringing enough of money that they have a successful YouTube show just because people knew his work and said, hey, can you do this thing that is similar but legally distinct from the thing that you used to do? <laughs> I remember the just the anxiety that I went through when I first launched my Patreon, which was in 2014 now, a couple of years ago, because... I work in a very, very saturated market. It wasn't saturated when I first started. There was very few people doing what I do. But when I first started, you couldn't ask for donations. This was not a thing people were going to support monetarily. And furthermore, everybody was pretty sure that it was illegal. And that if you tried to ask for money, you would get arrested. (laughs) Right. So it had to just be a hobby for the longest time. Yeah, it was in gameplay videos in general were just in this legal gray area. I mean, they're still in a legal gray area. Things have kind of settled now. I'm talking about 2010, 2011 or so. And the people who did put out the hat, as it were, people who had deals with like Machinima and other YouTube networks they were kind of seen as as skeevy like oh you're playing call of duty and asking people for money to watch you to play call of duty but it became more accepted and people started doing it and you watch these people nobody's getting arrested like they're they're not disappearing in a black van but the anxiety for me was like i'm gonna put the hat out and nobody's gonna put coins in it like this patreon's was gonna sit there and be at 83 cents for yeah for years as someone who has definitely done entire nights of streaming to nobody, <laughs> I know how that feels. <laughs> trying to find it now. I feel like I just read an article about Twitch streamers who go for months and months and months just streaming to zero people and what keeps them going. Have you seen that there's this thing now where the, the people who have like literally you know hundreds of thousands of followers now, they keep doing raids on people who have like no streamers yet at that point? It's like a thing people have been doing, and I haven't streamed lately, but I need to get on there <laughs> just to see if I to see if I get one of these like raids from you know Doctor Despicable or whatever. <laughs> oh my God. I had one night, dude. Oh, this is this is an embarrassing story, but it's funny, so I'll tell it. There's a YouTuber streamer. Uh, I'm not really familiar with his work, but his stuff pops up from time to time on my radar. Uh, named Boogie. Yes. Okay. Uh, when Mario Maker first came out, I played a lot of Mario Maker on stream. I did. I built levels on stream. I played the expert mode. I did viewer levels, and I played a, a lot of that game on stream. And I remember one night, I played Mario Maker to a typical size stream. So I mean, like maybe thirty or forty viewers for Mario mm-hmm. Maker for me at the time. And we did I don't know six or eight hours or so. And I called it night. I thanked everybody. I turned off the stream. And then I went over to some other guy's Mario Maker stream to watch it as I was winding down for the night. And he was smaller than I was. Like, I don't know, 20, 15, 20 viewers at the time. Two minutes after I left, this guy gets like a 200 plus raid from Boogie. And I'm like, those are my, that's my raid that this guy (laughs) got, uh, this asshole got, just ran off with. I was like, he only got those 200 viewers because I signed off. Oh, that's funny. It was... That's... (laughs) I want him back. 
Twitch is such a weird like place. Like I, I see these streamers who they play what I frankly think are not fun games, but they get hundreds and thousands of people following them and hundreds of people in their chat room at the same time. And I'm just like, ah, I don't, I don't understand it. I prefer smaller channels, smaller, more intimate channels where I can actually feel like I'm having a conversation with a guy streaming. Well, it makes perfect sense though, if you think about it, because somebody publishes a game that's not fun, but has some interesting aspect to it. I'll just pull one out of the hat completely at random. Let's say, oh, Five Nights at Freddy's. <laughs> okay. Nobody wants to play. This game is this game is crap. Can we be honest about this? The, the actual game is stupid and bad and boring, and there's nothing. But there's scary animals that jump out at you, so it's a, at least a little interesting. A game like that, you don't want to play it. You want to watch some other dude play it. That's the appeal. Yeah. They play it, so you get the experience of playing it without actually having to play this crap game. One of these games that you don't, never want to play it because it's barely a game. But it is interesting. Like, the story of it is interesting. One of them just got earmarked for a sequel. We're going to get Super Seducer 2 this year. Oh, I... Uh, so I know that you've watched some of this this week. So I watched I watched like the first ten minutes of I think it was Pro Jared was was playing it, and I'm usually pretty like whatever about these kind of things. And I wanted to reach to the screen and punch the dude so bad. Not Pro Jared, the guy in the game because right. it's it is an FMV game, a terrible douchey FMV pickup artist game. So how would you describe this game to somebody who doesn't know anything about it? This game is barely a game. This game is basically a multiple choice test for how to become a terrible, terrible person. Um, it is from a so-called pickup artist. And like the first scenario they were doing was passing a pretty girl in the street. And it was all these questions like, do you say something like, do you say this douchey pickup line to her? Do you uh, walk beside her? Do you? And that correct answer, quote unquote, was stand directly in front of her, block her escape routes, essentially, and engage her in conversation. I kind of want to take a shower just with you describing it, because you're. I try to be pretty blasé and open-minded about this stuff. I remember there was a Kickstarter a few years ago where one of the backer rewards was, we'll draw your girlfriend on a card or something. I'm like, yeah, that's pretty skeevy, but, I mean, it's not really breaking any laws or anything or i mean yeah it felt like like an invasion of privacy a, but a little, but I, you try i try to be like open-minded about it like if it's a cartoon version of her maybe it's not as bad but then i look at this super seducer and i'm like i just can't rationalize this at all there's no angle from which i can look at this and say this is a thing that we have to have in our game library and part of it is is the whole like um there's a term for it that I've, that that goes around somewhere. It's called like the manosphere. It's hilarious because these groups supposedly hate each other and think that they're all completely different, but they're all the same. They're all this like marginalized man groups. So when you've got your pickup artist and your incels and your big toes and your uh, oh, what's the other stupid one? The red pills. The red pills are a big <laughs> part of it. I like that I didn't want to name a crappy Kickstarter game earlier because I didn't want to get any blowback, and now we're just just diving right into this. No, I mean, no, this needs to be discussed. I have, like, a hate boner for these guys right now. Like, I just hate these these terrible trash men. And really what it is is this the pickup artist is this kind of person who tries to take advantage of insecure young men by feeding them this load of garbage that leads to 
sometimes violence against women and, and other people, too. And it really infuriates me. I, see, I don't hate anybody. I'm a lover, <laughs> not a fighter. And I have... Like, I, I I have an understanding of where some of these men come from. The incels and the red pills and whatnot. I, I remember what it was like to be a teenager and, not, and, like, no girl ever wanted to talk to me and feeling powerless. And I know where this modern movement comes from. But at the same time, it's like, that's kid stuff. Looking back, I wasn't like that because I was a put-upon man in a woman's world. It was because I was 17 and I didn't know how anything worked. The biggest revelation for me was when I finally hit the point where I realized, oh, wait, girls are insecure and shy and scared of rejection and horny, too. <laughs> to be, you know, a young man with the knowledge I have now, it would have been a completely different ballgame. But that's the thing. Nobody knows that. No teenager really understands that at the time. And, and that's why these pickup artists and the red pills and these people, they use cult-like tactics. They recruit people. And the super seducer game is, it's, it's a recruitment tool. It's really what it is. I mean, it's, it's laughable to most of us, but we're not the people it's targeting. I don't think it's laughable though. Like I, oh, let's be clear. I think the super seducer game, watching the footage of it is hysterical. Well, it's laughable as a game. Right. Like, the idea of pickup artistry, okay? The idea that there are men that can teach you how to land a woman. There's a set of rules or something that you follow. Like, the idea of that just makes me mad. Because they're not honest about it. So, I'm going to tell you everybody out there, all of you you poor put-upon single men, who are wondering whether or not the pickup artistry works. Here's two things they don't tell you. It does work, okay? But... Number one, you have to be a bad person to do it. You have to be willing to play on somebody else's insecurities. You have to be the willing to be the guy who's going to stand in the doorway to block her escape route, like you said. You have to be that person. And two, you have to do it to every single woman you meet. In order to get the one woman who will fall for it, you've got to go through dozens and dozens and dozens who are just going to shut you down. It's like telemarketing. You've got to do it over and over and over. Cold calling people and harassing them all day long to find the one woman who will do it. Well, that's only partially true because I remember I used to work a shift where when I got off, Loveline would be on back in the day. <laughs> I remember like, Loveline. Yeah. Right. And the thing about Loveline is Dr. Drew knows his stuff. Like Dr. Drew's for real. One of the things that I remember hearing him say over and over again is that victimizers know how to find victims. They get a feel for it. Yes. So it isn't shooting in the dark and being bad to every woman. I mean, I'm sure they are because they're just bad people. But they learn how to pick up on the women who are insecure, the women who are going to be susceptible to, to garbage tactics like negging or whatever. Yes, and let me, let me clarify that you're absolutely right that the people who do kind of hone the skill for it will know where to go. I'm talk, trying to talk about the guys who think they can learn something from Super Seducer. Oh, gotcha, In gotcha, order gotcha, to build gotcha. up to that level to get better at this horrible thing that you're doing to people, you have to do it a lot. You have to build up a callus. You have to build up an asshole callus. Yeah. To really... That's a terrible... <laughs> an asshole callus. <laughs> we just have to sit and steep in that one for a minute. But yeah, just the concept of pickup artistry really bothers me for that reason because it's for the same kind of reason that like Herbalife bothers me 
They tell you the system works if you work it. What they don't tell you is that the system is terrible and hurts people and takes hundreds and hundreds of hours of you doing it before it even starts to work. Which one's Herbal Life? Is that the one where you just put garbage like herbs in your body to lose weight? Is that the one? Well, it's a pyramid scheme. Oh, yeah, it so, is an, an MLM. Yes. A multi-level marketing. I guess they don't technically like the term pyramid scheme, but pff, it's not a pyramid. It's a reverse funnel. <laughs> <laughs> That's another thing my wife is interested in is these, uh, these weird pyramid schemes that people get into. I actually got invited to a... Uh, it was sort of like somewhere between Scientology and a pyramid scheme. It was basically, you can have a better life if you just do these things, and we can tell you how, and you can lead a class of your own. And I was like, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> I ended up in a, uh, when I was job hunting once, years and years ago, what they advertise as an interview. And at the time, I didn't realize that like companies that are legitimately hiring don't advertise interviews. You you get invited to an interview after they're considering your resume. Like I didn't realize that's how it worked. The interview turned out <laughs> to be an MLM seminar, and mm -hmm. I remember I was twenty years old or so, and I remember sitting there and being like, "This is absolute BS. Everything this guy is saying is absolute BS," and just being terrified, looking around the room and seeing all these people who were just buying it. <laughs> just the old people who are just like nodding. A lot of old like, people. Oh. Yeah, a lot of them. Uh, but 10 minutes of the seminar was this is the product that we sell, whatever. And then 50 minutes of the seminar is, and here's how you make money by recruiting people under you. And I'm thinking, I only know like 12 people total. And none of them have any money to quote unquote invest in my level of the market so well, i mean that's why things like mary Kay and all that i mean mary Kay is kind of like the most reputable quote-unquote one but like the way that these things make money is they keep selling down and selling down and selling down and somewhere at the bottom of the pyramid you've got a guy who has a garage full of things they can't unload mm -hmm. because they're not selling these things to customers they're selling these things to distributors who a lot of times just end up sitting on it and it's really sad one of Peanut's friends who still lives in Ohio has a garage filled with sex toys. <laughs> I don't remember the name of the company now, but it was the way they said that these people could make money, women particularly, it's a company selling women's sex toys and sex apparel and things, personal lubricants and saucy underwear and whatnot. But they're like, okay, people aren't going to buy this stuff from you when you go around. So here's what you do is whenever you hear of somebody getting married, you pitch our sales seminar as an idea for the bachelorette party. Yep. So Peanut had this as her bachelorette party, and she said it was awful. You're right. It's basically the modern Tupperware party. But the problem is, is eventually all your friends get married. Yeah. I'm hoping I don't have to go to another wedding until, like, the next generation of kids starts getting married. <laughs> you know? No, no, I'm done with weddings. I'm over weddings. I told my... Uh... My brother and sister-in-law, I'm like, look, I've only got one wedding left in me for the rest of my life, so you two are going to have to marry each other. <laughs> <laughs> the cool thing about having my brother and sister-in-law are way younger than me. Like, they're ten years younger yeah. than us. So, like, I get to just say whatever I want. I get to be the crazy, awkward sibling that they never knew they loved. <laughs> I thought I was done with weddings, and then my friend who, uh, one of my best friends, and just was convinced he was going to be one of these lifelong bachelors, you know, and then all of a sudden he's like, I'm getting married, you're in my wedding, I'm like, son of a, I mean, congratulations, but really, I thought I was done with weddings. <laughs> Next person that tells me I'm in their wedding, I'm declining. Wow. I've been in weddings, and sorry, but no. 
In fact, I remember we all went out to Tucson for our everybody in the D and D group after you quit the D and D group. So this you were you weren't invited, I guess. You guys? No, I was invited. I was actually invited. I just couldn't make it because my son was like three months old. Oh yeah, that, that's right. This, oh, God, I'm forgetting how long ago this was now. But yeah, it was long ago. Yeah, uh, about two years, a little over two years now. We all flew out there, and only one of us was in the wedding party. And I feel like the groom picked the one person in our group who would not like wasn't going to be resentful of being placed in the wedding party. We joked about it afterward. I'm like, thank you for not putting me in your wedding party. Didn't want to be in there. I will say this, my, the last wedding I went to, I mean, it was probably my best friend in the world. And also being older, being like, we're all pushing 40 now and we're like half of us have kids. It was way more relaxed. You know, it was just, let's just go to a house. We're going to drink some beer. We're going to do some swimming. We're just going to, we're not going out. It's going to be, I mean, it was a super chill bachelor party. It was a super chill wedding. It was actually a whole lot of fun. But I do remember like when you told me about it, it was like, I got got to get another suit. I got to get, you know. My best friend in the world got married. He put me in his wedding and he had a Renaissance themed wedding in the middle of the summer. So I'm out there in these thick breeches and black boots and this, tight vests and he's out there wearing chain mail and like a coif and it's 7,000 degrees outside and it takes three hours for the photographer to it's like oh it was miserable it was bad we got inside and it was great (laughs) it was fine but all of the responsibilities that come with being in the wedding party are responsibilities that I can do without in my life yeah, I mean, being in a wedding party isn't so bad if it's a big enough wedding party. I had to do best man duties one time, and again, you know, was very happy to do it. Was very proud to to be somebody's best man. But I was still, I was like, I don't have a clue what I'm doing. Like, I felt like I was a terrible best man because I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing, y'all. Probably every best man feels like that, though. I don't know. I'm sure that there's best men who are like, I've got, you know, you pick your friend who's loaded and can fly all your friends to Vegas, you know, if you can. <laughs> I was too much of a wuss to pick a best man for my wedding. So I kind of. Oh, you just did I kind of split the duties up between three different people. Because, <laughs> I, I mean, I felt a lot of social pressure to make my brother the best man. And my brother's a great guy, and I love my brother dearly, but he's not as big a part of my life as some of my actual friends are. I mean, that's that's fair. So I have to make him the best man, but I can't make him the best man. So here's what I did. This is genius. I made him the officiant of the wedding. I did the opposite. <laughs> I made my best friend, well, my best friend officiated the wedding and was technically my best man, but my brother stood at my side. Mm-hmm. So he stood like in the best man's position. It did, you know, to his credit, some of the best man duties he took upon himself. Yeah, I did kind of the opposite because <laughs> we were like, who are we going to get to do this wedding? I was like, I'm going to ask him. <laughs> you know? We're not church people. <laughs> And the funny thing is, I mean, we were pretty young when we got married. I was like 26 when we got married. And that was the first time he had ever done that. He's done that multiple times since then. He's done it a lot for people because he's a performer. I mean, he he has a presence to him. And when he got married, I was terrified he was going to ask me to be the efficient just because he did my wedding. But as luck would have it, his brother also does weddings. And so he was like, no, I'm going to have my I'm going to have my brother do it. But I'm old enough now that I realize like, I could just decline. Hey, man, be at my wedding. No, I'm good. <laughs> now, would you decline going to the wedding? Or are we just saying, I, I don't want to be at the wedding? 
interesting. So here's the thing. If you know me well enough that you invite me to your wedding, you also know me well enough to know that if I don't want to go to your wedding, it's not meant as a slight. <laughs> I've got a couple of friends who have weddings coming up, and some of them I've given, like, lukewarm. Eh, maybe we'll see. I have only ever once accompanied Peanut to one of her friend's weddings, and I will never do so again. Oh, no. <laughs> oh. It's just the same thing. I just don't like weddings. But this wedding in particular was a full 400-people Catholic wedding. Oh, no. And it was very, it was, like, suffocating. I remember going to the church, and we're all just milling around in the lobby of the church because they haven't opened the doors yet or whatever, and they have this gigantic, just wall-sized picture of, not this pope, but the previous pope. The the really, like, you look at a picture of this guy, and he just, like, looks evil. Oh, Nazi pope. Yeah, Nazi pope. I don't remember his name. <laughs> Um, Rathburger or something. I mean, I forget what his... Yeah, we, we had, we had like, the really chill Pope who was Pope for, like, a hundred years, and then we had Nazi Pope. And just looking at this guy, he just... You just know he's bad news. And now we have some... Like, he was only Pope for, like, ten minutes, and now we're on to some new Pope. Yeah, he, re he like, resigned. He was such a bad Pope that he resigned. <laughs> I remember just staring at this picture, just, like... I've only ever seen this picture in a postage stamp size square on Wikipedia. And here I am staring at this just floor-to-ceiling, gilded frame. <laughs> just, oh, oh, it unnerved me so much. That guy had a scowl, too. I think he was Benedict. I Benedict, think was his name. that's he was one it, of, yes. He was Benedict something. And then now we're on to Francis, is, is the new guy. Yeah, we're, we're like on um, relatively liberal Pope now. I like, I like to think that we have like a devout Catholic viewer watching right now who's like, did he just call Pope Francis the new guy? The new guy. Come on. <laughs> he has been Pope since 2013. He's been Pope for five years already. I, I don't keep up with Pope news. It might surprise you to learn. <laughs> I have been on Pope Watch before where you have to sit and watch the stupid, like, chimney. And, and you're like, is that is that smoke black? Is it white? Why did they do? Why did they pick black and white for smoke? <laughs> they should do, like, some, like, red smoke or something. How cool would it be to just have, like, a cardinal just live tweeting from inside with emojis and everything? Like, a little Pope emoji? like hey we got a new guy hashtag new pope <laughs> new pope well you know they just they went to new pope for a few years um and nobody liked it so then they went back to pope classic pope. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you i'll be here all night <laughs>